Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I am Erin Monas here with my wonderful co-host, Blake Dean, and today we are excited to host advocate, writer, and speaker, Eugene Hung. Eugene is an advocate, educator, and writer. His blog, Feminist Asian Dad, is the main hub for his writings, but you can also find his columns and articles in AsianInsMagazine.com, FindingBalance.com, HuffPost, The Mary Sue, Sojourners, Red Letter Christians, Christians for Biblical Equality, Eight Asians, Thick Dumpling Skin, Cataclytic Women, and the National Park Service. Interesting. In addition to being a freelance writer, Eugene is also a public speaker on women's rights, masculinity, and relationship and sexual violence prevention. Previously, he worked as an educator at the University of California, Irving, in the Campus Assault Resources and Education Office. Before that, he was on the paid staff of the nonprofit Man Up Campaign as a movement organizer and digital communications manager. And before even that, he served for more than 12 years as a church minister. Eugene holds a theology, a master's of theology degree in leadership, a BA in math and political science, and he is a state certified to work as a sexual assault victim advocate. He lives with his wife and two daughters in Southern California, and Eugene states, my experiences with my girls and my advocacy on their behalf provide the fodder for my commentary on parenting, gender, feminism, race, and culture, which sets us up nicely um, because Blake Dean, what should listeners be listening for in this podcast with Eugene? Yeah, it was so fun to get to talk with him. Some of my favorite parts of the conversation were talking about his life as a church minister, which to him feels like a couple lifetimes ago. Um, but um, really his journey to the affirmation of the equality of men and women in spiritual and ecclesial spaces. Um, I'd also listen for how his daughters changed his vision of what um, being a woman looks like or ought to look like. And then also uh, listening for the intersections of race and gender as he raises two Asian American daughters. Wonderful. Well, guys, we hope you enjoy this interview with Eugene Hung. Everyone, we are excited to be here with our newest and latest guest, Eugene Hung. We are um, excited to introduce him to you today. But as you guys know, we always like to start with our watch, read, or listen segment. So first off, Blake Dean... What are you watching, reading, or listening to these days? Well, admittedly, my wife and I, instead of reaching out into any new content or reaching back to the good old comforts of our youth or of my youth specifically, which is the West Wing. So we are in season three and it is excellent. I'm hanging out with CJ Craig and President Bartlett at least three times a week. And yeah, an election does my year heart classic. Good. Yeah. An election year classic. It feels yeah. a bit like a fairy tale certain moments, um, <laughs> but getting to introduce uh, my wife to it is really fun. Oh, nice. So nice. what about you, Erin? Oh, I have to say we found this weird reality show called Alone. <laughs> okay, here's why, though. Let me prep. Let me preference with saying this. Um, so people are sent out to this remote location. They have to survive on nothing but the skills that they bring with them. Most all of them are survivalists of some kind. They've got like 10 survivalist items they bring with them. And it's just however long they can stand it, however long they can stay out there. Last one wins. It's like, I don't know, like, like $100,000 or something like this. But to me, this is so interesting because they, they're, they've got all this camera equipment. They're just filming themselves. And so you are watching the sort of degeneration of the, of the human psyche due to the effects of, of being alone. And, and there's all these, so as, as a sociologist and all these things, I, we've just been enjoying it so much because um, despite, you know, obviously there being interesting twists and turns, like the, the study of, of humanity. I mean, when else could you do something like this and actually observe human behavior? And especially because of quarantine and everyone talking about being alone. So there, I've tied it back. So I can justify <laughs> this weird little quirk. And but you that's like we... reality TV. Okay, no, I will never admit that. No, no, no. I do like observing weird human behavior that I could normally not do. But yes, yeah, so we're watching. We're watching alone. There's like seven seasons, so we're 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 deep into it. It's sort of like uh, if you're I mean, if you enjoy watching, you know, weird human behavior. It's it's sort of like pre-edited, pre-packaged human pathology, just right there yes. on screen. They've even given you background music for it. 
Yes, see, Eugene gets it. This is this is great. Well, guys, as you as you hear our our guest Eugene, we are very excited to have. So Eugene, why don't you why don't you start off by telling us something you're watching, reading, or listening to these days? Something. I mean, I'm not currently watching because my wife and I finished it, but uh, we were uh, big fans of the TV show Marvel's Agents of Shield. Yeah. Um, it kind of starting off from uh, the Marvel films and the TV show. It ran for seven seasons and. Mm -hmm. We were there for every minute of it. We didn't miss, you know, we didn't have to binge like crazy to catch up. We were kind of keeping up as it went. And it really, toward the end, I mean, there's all the fantastical and the, you know, sci-fi and the superhero stuff, but um, it really meant a lot to me. While it was fronted by the white male, you know, Agent Phil Coulson, who's, mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of those Marvel movies, toward the end, I mean, from the beginning, they had two Asian women on there, Ming-Na Wen and Chloe Bennett, uh, whose dad is is Chinese. And uh, toward the end, with the storyline they were running with, in those last two or three episodes, they had four super-powered Asian women, Asian characters on the show. You know, two of them were like guest stars, but which was extraordinary, given especially that only a couple years ago, including Chloe Bennett, you only had four super-powered Asian female characters on all of television yeah wow they, they put it together in a bit of a spoiler Ming-Na Wen develops you know extra you know superpower type stuff beyond her just you know being really strong and nimble and, and martial arts and stuff but um, it's just that that meant a lot to me and it felt like you know here here is something where there's a show that's become more than just a tv show they've they've captured something that I mean my girls are too young to watch it but, uh, you know, because it, it adds to the whole cultural experience of, you know, the more that representation is done well, the more it fosters, you know, people willing to take chances on shows that have that, whether it's viewers or people funding studios who are fronting the money for these shows. So uh, that was that was a pretty special experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's such a great show. But I, I love that observation. So thanks. I love that. Well, um, as you heard in uh, Eugene's bio in our intro, you've heard about his experience in advocacy for women. So Eugene, I'd love to just begin by talking about your own personal journey into advocacy for women. Could you specifically speak to the male listeners of our podcast about why that journey is important for Christian men? So for me, I, I grew up in the church. Uh, we started going to church when I was six I put my faith in Jesus when I was eight or so. I went to a Baptist school from grades one through seven. And I had church you know, you know, on Sundays. And so I grew up very much surrounded by um, Christian influences. And I grew up in, in, in Houston, in Southeast Texas, uh, in a pretty conservative interpretation of, of uh, Christianity. It was very clearly a complementarian setup uh, in in everything. Men were the leaders. Women were, you know, they led the children's choir or they, you know, helped out with this or that. But they were never, you know, the the pastor or the chaplain. Um, they were the ones who uh, were supporting. That's just kind of what I was used to. I remember there came a point in time. And I, I didn't think I was a chauvinist or a Neanderthal. I, I always thought I'm a pretty sensitive guy. You know, I'm pretty, I'm very empathetic and all that. But there came a point in time where after my wife and I started dating, this is 20, oh gosh, four years ago, where she, she asked, you know, so, so where, where do you, where do you base this on the fact that you think women can't preach, but they can share in church services and I paused and I thought about it for a moment and I thought, I don't know <laughs> what I've always heard or what I've always been taught that there's some distinction. And, you know, when she called me on it, it's like, well, where does it come from? I couldn't point to anything in the scriptures. There's no, no case that could be made. And, and, and so that, that really started uh, me on a real uh, harder look at, what does it mean for men and women to be in the church and what their roles are? And if we hadn't had that conversation and for me to, 
to grow a lot in that area, uh, she probably wouldn't have married me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're, I mean, she's my wife and the mother of my children. And uh, so, uh, but that's not the only reason I think gender theology is important, that you'd have a greater chance of having an egalitarian wife. Um, (laughs) Indeed. But I, I think a lot of the additional work that I've had to do a lot of additional learning and listening that's really come. I mean, to back up I, I, my, de- my degree in theology is from Dallas seminary. I have a THM and at Dallas, even though at least at the time I was there, which is 96 to 2000, when, at least when I was there, it was, it was more diverse in the views that the faculty had than one would think. Uh, it was still majority complementarian, but there were a few egalitarian folks there. Uh, Ron Allen, a uh, great OT professor who uh, came from Portland to Dallas. He was one of the better known ones. And um, nobody, it was not a big deal to anybody. There was not a single professor, uh, especially on the complementarian side, who made, who really drew a line in the sand um, I mean, that was before kind of this neo-Calvinist resurgence right. uh, with Piper and MacArthur and stuff. But at least back then, everybody was very respectful and was willing to say, here, look at the other side. And so that was really helpful in my own exploration, too. Um, so that by the time, pretty much by the time I was out of seminary, uh, even though I went to Dallas Seminary, uh, I was pretty confirmed as an egalitarian by that point. Um, using what Dallas Seminary taught me about studying the Bible to end up on the other side of things than, than how I'd grown up. And a lot of that was due to, I, I, I remember when I was younger thinking, wow, these egalitarian arguments, I, I don't buy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it feels like there's a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics or acrobatics that they have to do yeah. to the point where, I mean, it changed to the point that by the time I was out of seminary or shortly after that, that, that uh, I, I really felt opposite. I mm-hmm. felt like you know, both both camps have legitimate arguments and good points to make, but I felt like, wow, the more consistent kind of construct really belongs to the egalitarians. And I think that's important, not just as a, as a spiritual theological exercise, but that it does affect how, how I relate to my wife. We see ourselves as partners. I'm not the lead. She's supposed to support me. We're partners in this endeavor of life and endeavor of marriage. It impacts how I raise my daughters. I only have two kids, both girls, and uh, how we raise them. Uh, how, how I think of, at least back in my pastoral days, what I would think of in terms of trying to make sure that we were involving women in discussions, yeah. involving women in leadership roles and prominent leadership roles and trying to do that. It's pretty important to, to think of it as um, not just an exercise and, you know, intellectual exercise or theological exercise, but, to, but it really had practical applications too. What was the journey for you, not only being like, yes, I think this is the hermeneutically consistent, um, compelling argument, but then that kind of evolving and changing into specific forms of action? Was it as you listened to other people? Was it just experientially as you felt it out? Like, what was that process like for you? A lot of it was was kind of this gradual. While I was a pastor, I, I would say that I probably didn't grow as much, partly because the, the church that I was serving, the churches I've served in have been mainly complementarian. None of them have made a huge deal about about it, but uh, I think that itself, it was kind of a job security thing to not go too far out on the ledge with what I was thinking or the thoughts I was playing with. It was it was a gradual thing. It was some reading. Uh, it was some exposing myself online to 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 women writers, Christian women um, who were, you know, whether it's ChristianityToday.com, they had. I think they had a section or a vertical called hermeneutics or hermeneutic or something like that. H E R was the emphasis. And so just reading things here and there, it put a lot of growth happened to me after I left my last pastorate, which was eight years ago. Now that kind of gave me the freedom to start to really just talk with a lot of different people, listen, learn, 
to really start to explore, well, what does this look like, I think, for me, beyond any strictures that a church or a church role would have, a church job would have for me, too. I didn't identify as a feminist before I left my last pastorate. I, what, I, what I started doing was, I st- after I left my last church in terms of pastoring, I started blogging. I started blogging for a Christian ministry called Finding Balance. Com. It's, a, it's a really good ministry for folks with eating disorders and body image issues. They invited me to, to write for their parenting column. Uh, my girls were super young at the time and not dealing that much with body image issues in particular, but they were interested in having me talk about, well, what's emotionally healthy parenting? What are we trying to do to do that? And that led to connecting with uh, really Christian feminists and then that opened the door to kind of a, a big wide world of, of kind of everybody in the feminist movement. I, I could hear from, learn from, and really got me going in terms of you know, a couple of years later, an organization called Man Up Campaign found me online. And they're a group that mobilizes men and boys to advocate for women and girls rights, as well as to, for an end of violence against women and girls. And, and I joined staff with them a couple of years uh, after leaving my last church as, as a pastor. So that's kind of some of the, some of the road that I took to, to get there. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Eugene. It's really, it's, I think it's interesting in each person's story. Cause I know even for myself, like this whole issue uh, relating to, to women and um, gender theology for most of my growing up didn't really seem that important until it actually had to, come to a head in my own life in terms of, of I, I have to deal with this now. Um, I don't really have a choice, but uh, it seemed sort of like a, like an a la carte theological item that didn't really, didn't really need to be as important as some of the other things that we were learning and, and focusing on. And I think it's interesting that the, the stories and the ways that people uh, come into our lives, the way God sends us people and uh, things into our lives that, that influence that journey as it sort of builds on itself. And and to be honest, um, you know, God dropping two daughters into my life, uh, that that was pretty seminal for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I left my last pastorate and had some space and time to think about stuff, I, I started to sit with the ideas of what it would be like for my girls to grow up in this society. As I thought about, well, you know, they're going to grow up Asian American girls in in the United States. As I started to learn more about women's rights and issues of violence against women and girls, gender-based violence, am I really okay with them growing up in a society where almost one out of every five women experiences rape at some point in their lives? That's a CDC statistic that 19% of American women experience rape sometime in their lifetimes. And that 44% of American women experience some other form of sexual violence. Uh, again, the CDC, and it's like, well, I mean, that, I was I was horrified. Mm. This is old news to to women, but I, I think for me, as as a man, even as somebody who thought of myself as an empathetic, sensitive man, brother in Christ, I I had no idea it was on that level. Kind of sitting with that, like my girls going to grow up in that society. What am I going to do about that? Uh, talking about body image even. Mm-hmm. Am I okay with my girls growing up in this society where they're bombarded zillions of times a day in print, audio, visual, um, all these messages making them feel inadequate or bad about how they feel about themselves? Am I okay with that? Um, well, no, no, I'm not. And mm-hmm. What that led to, because I, partly because I had more time after leaving my last pastorate, um, that that led to a greater emphasis on activism in my own life. That led to joining Man Up Campaign and doing other things, writing, speaking, and, and so on. It's it's I, I felt like I could just be their dad and try to navigate, help them navigate this awful setup uh, that's tilted against women and girls, uh, you know, and that would be the best thing I could do is to be their dad and to help them 
work through all this. But there was also a big part of me that was like, I, I cannot just do that. I have to be involved in doing something. I have to be involved in pushing back on the darkness. You know, I'm just a drop in the bucket, but I need my drop to, to be out there and, and doing something. So that was also a big turning point, just kind of starting to reckon with, well, you know, what are my daughter's lives going to be like? And, you know, really, this is not unusual for fathers of daughters to kind of have this sort of crisis moment. It shouldn't have taken that. It shouldn't have taken having daughters to start to reckon with the fact that, you know, half the human race deals with this and to really care about women's and girls' rights. Uh, but that is my story. It did take that to you know, shock me out of my male privilege, at least having the scales fall from my eyes, as it were. So that was a big part of, I think, the whole journey also. Yeah. Well, and we, we appreciate that. And we also don't want to take for granted the uniqueness, because if having daughters was enough of a catalyst uh, to to push men uh, in in the direction that you've gone, Eugene, then then that would be great. But unfortunately, uh, a world full of daughters um, has is still still doesn't move the needle for for a lot of so I just I just want to make a note of that, because I appreciate your sincerity and your authenticity. But I also just want to say how fantastic it is that those dots connected for you and, and push you towards advocacy. And, and I, you know, I'm encouraged by that and, and appreciate that, but, but don't want to take for granted that that is still unique and powerful in its own right. So. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Keeping in, keeping in this vein, I would love to, to kind of peel off into helping both our male and our female listeners, because I think there's a tendency for gender theology to sort of get stuck in a realm where either women are only talking about it with other women or men um, who are open-minded, sensitive, caring men, um, but don't always see the urgency in studying gender theology. It's, it's very similar to why we avoid uh, parts of scripture that we don't think directly apply to us. We just don't spend sure. as much time there. And that's, that seems reasonable. But for anyone who's listening to this podcast, we know they're already curious about this. We know they're already um, trying to gather resources. So so just from your perspective, Eugene, can you tell, tell us a little bit about why addressing uh, the topic of gender theology, particularly in in fighting against patriarchy as a, as a sin, is important for our churches, for people in our churches, for both men and women. How does it damage us both? And and can you just give us some perspective on that? At least for for me, some of the stuff that I've learned and been processing, uh, I came across. I think it was two years ago, and I don't remember the citation for this. But it was research that demonstrated that, that girls that grow up in churches where women are prominent in leadership, they found a correlation between that and a higher self-esteem. Mm. And that was, that was pretty striking to me. It, intuitively, it kind of makes sense uh, because, you know, I, I know that for me as an Asian American and lots of Asian Americans, less so these days, but especially 30, 40 years ago, whenever we see some Asian dude on screen, it'd be like, hey, you know, that looks like <laughs> me, you know, and yeah. it'd be like, whoa, the Asian. And, and so um, it may, you, know, you feel good about yourself and, and, and you feel like there are possibilities. And so it makes sense that girls seeing themselves kind of seeing somebody that they could be like, somebody they could follow in the footsteps of. There's a saying some people have, I think especially Gina Davis uh, and her Institute for Gender and Media um, talks about if she can see it, she can be it. Mm -hmm. Right. And just even from our, our daughters and how they feel about themselves, they're not, they're not dumb. You know, they, they can, they can tell, even yeah. if there's not a lot of gender theology discussed, they can tell it's always the guys in charge. That's one real basic component is, um, how do the girls feel about themselves? I think, how do the boys feel about girls? As, mm -hmm. as boys are growing up, do they end up feeling there, there is male privilege and there's also Christian male privilege. Uh, those of us who've grown up in complementarian churches probably all have to deconstruct that or peel that, peel that off uh, because we, we grow up just being used to seeing guys up there at the pulpit, whether it's our, our dads or whomever. 
Um, yeah. You know, it's they're the pastors, they're the deacons, they're the elders, they lead songs. So it's sort of like naturally assumed this is this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to go into. Um, and so it becomes limiting to to men um, first for themselves thinking, well, I have to be one of these upfront people. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't work with kids. You know, that's that's a that's mm-hmm. a women's mm-hmm. ministry thing. I need to be one of these upfront, rah rah, you know, uh, even thunderous people from the pulpit. And that's that itself is not honoring to the way that God might gift some somebody as mm. as a male person. Um, and then for for girls and women, then that becomes kind of the reinforcing part of the patriarchy, where um, as men we see ourselves when we think of a pastor or a leader, we see somebody that looks like us in that role, as opposed to potentially a woman um, in that role. Sort of like when we imagine opening up a dictionary. And next to the word pastor, what kind of a drawing do we see? Well, I mean, complementarian men, we tend to think of, we don't do this on purpose, but we tend to think of, you know, we have to think of other men. And so that's very limiting to us as men, but also to the women and their gifting as, as we end up reinforcing the patriarchy within the church, reinforcing that Christian male privilege and keeping women from using the gifts that God has given them and the passions that he's placed um, in their hearts. I think it, it's damaging too from, from the standpoint, I kind of referred to this a second ago, that you know, when we feel like men have to be the leaders and they have to be these strong ones, and, and there's a certain idea of what that strength looks like, that's part of what drives, I think, men into uh, what's, what Tony Porter and other people have called the man box, uh, where where it's you know you can your your masculinity can only look like you know this you can't go outside the confines of this you have to be tough you have to be strong uh, never show doubt never show tears um, never you know but the, it just kind of promotes that sort of stereotypical and there's some men who are kind of more wired that way and I'm not saying that they shouldn't honor the fact that they are uh, perhaps more the strong silent type innately but God and all his diversity, God, God creating humanity in all its diversity, then the way we do gender theology can be very limiting or freeing uh, mm-hmm. to both men and women in a church context. Yeah, I love that. And two just additional anecdotal points. Number one, like I grew up in, in fairly not hostile or vitriolic, but complementarian spaces um, where men were the teachers and men were the preachers and leaders by the end of high school early college I had really wrestled a lot theologically and so in my head it was like yes women I really am compelled and convinced that women should be able to teach and preach in the freedom and giftings that God has given them if that's the gifting that God has granted to them but not being able to see it even makes it more still a little now it makes me happy but early make like earlier in my journey would be a little shocking in certain ways, not in a bad way, but just in like a, Oh yeah, there's a woman on the up up there. Right. Like (laughs) I remember the first time I heard Aaron preach, I was like, Oh, that's fun. Cool. Like Like I was like, I was compelled about that, but I had never seen it. Right. Or like, um, and even now be kind of being in church context where, where that isn't realized often um when a woman stands on stage and reads scripture i'm ready to start running the aisles a little bit right and it's yeah, like, that's a yeah. low bar um and so i think that's an excellent point and also to the to the man box or the masculine script point i think um if i could just add my own editorial sure. which is sure. i think that is one of the most dangerous things to our christian men um is limiting i know at least personally that was something that i wrestled with frequently and often was going i'm not quiet and i'm not particularly strong or athletic or all of these weird aesthetics we add to our even our theological ideas of manhood that have absolutely no place in um in our conversations about um like value or or manhood in general and i i find that to be that was deeply difficult for me and hurtful for me um and i know to a lot of my brothers as well and having to negotiate that and um, kind of edging out those um giftings and experiences and 
members of the body of Christ that we need. I agree. I think the man box or the way that the patriarchy tends to run, it tends to push men into a, a John Wayne sort of mold. Somehow that's just, you know, it's, it's the tough, strong, and, and some of that's media, some of that's, um, you know, kind of the American sort of myth of conquering the West, I think. And, and, Go ahead. But it really, I think, lends itself towards jock or an athlete or, or someone who's real, you know, loves to work on cars. So, so it fits a certain stereotype. And those of us who, you know, couldn't, I, I, I love sports. I mean, I watch all kinds of things. I love playing them. But God didn't give me any kind of physical coordination. <laughs> so, you know, I, I am not good at anything. And uh, so so for those of us who are more nerdy or geeky or whatever, then what, is, what does that mean for us in a church context? Can, can a church space be safe also? If, if the youth group games... Uh, lend themselves not towards, you know, somebody who has a, you know, powerful speaking or intellect, you know, like like nerds like to, you know, big words will impress people, or but instead with toward athleticism, you know, like like relay races at Christian retreats, um, you know, tug of war things like that. I'm not saying those are non-Christian or bad, but do we have a place for the nerdy boys, the geeky boys who, you know, can't who don't fit that uh, strong, silent, they, they might not fit the more biblical manhood type of constructs that have been designed. Oh, yeah. Go there, Eugene, with the youth group culture. Yes, I, and amen. I think you're dead on. And I also think it's a spiritual formation issue because it's teaching or maybe even subliminally like suggesting that um, personality or behavior modification is the way of obedience and discipleship rather than... Um, being fully who you have been created to be and the Lord refining yes. and sanctifying yeah. that. And I also think, um, I was thinking this while yeah. you were talking is also, I think it's about time to call out the idolatry of some things about the masculine script, specifically like the idea that men have to be provider. Um, because I think scripture is incredibly clear that God is provider. I think man in the wilderness Amen. is a slam dunk on that one. Sure. And to suggest that um, to be a faithful husband or a faithful man in a particular way, which to say to be a man, we're suggesting husband and edging out singleness, but um, yeah. is to is to suggest provision a lot of the time um, in a way that's not only not realistic, but I think kind of theologically vapid. Yeah, that totally. I'm totally there with you. That there's a lot to peel apart. I mean, I know for myself, just growing up Ontarian and surrounded by that. To the point where, you know, like like you said, it was unusual to see a woman up front. It was, you know, I even at one point thought uh, if a woman was up front preaching that something was wrong, that this was out of God's design and out of God's plan. There is sin happening here, you know, and so a lot of stuff can flow from that. And, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen to even most Christian men, but there's we haven't even touched on how uh, gender theology can be used as, as a weapon against both women and men. But in terms right. of when we're talking about context of, of an abusive family, um, when we start to wield submission as, as this, this weapon um, that you can't, you can't even think about leaving your husband uh, who's beating you up and, things like that, because the Bible says so, things like that. And uh, that's, that's a whole other dark corner of this whole, whole thing. And, and I'm not saying that complementarian people necessarily are going to end up there, but there are certainly people, we've, uh, even church counselor type people who've used the scriptures to say you have to stay in this marriage, uh, you have to stay in this abusive relationship to be honoring to God, and that's related to gender theology. Oh gosh, uh, you, you're so spot on with that, Eugene. And and I I can't tell you how many conversations I have with around this idea of submission because um, in one sense submission is this beautiful biblical principle that all Christians sign on to in terms of understanding our connection to to Christ and the Holy Spirit's transformative work in our lives. Um, and so, so, but it's been abused 
in these in these certain ways, specifically to the way our churches and our leaders have dealt with abuse, which sadly we have seen time and time and time again, um, these horror stories um, mm. that are coming to light, thank God, through like the Me Too movement and and church to movements. Yeah. But um, yeah. but ultimately, our we we see this we see this abuse. But I also find that I, I talk with uh, sisters who are are raising up uh, this this championship, but also really struggling now with the concept of submission and the idea because we've because we've weaponized it in that way. So there's so much healing that needs to be done in all these spheres. And which is why I think, Eugene, specifically your advocacy, um, talking about sexual violence and also uh, other men and women that are doing the same work is so crucial to the life of the church because this, I I have thought about this previously, but as you were talking, Aaron, I just kind of thought about it anew. Is it not only is a dangerous and damaging physical relationship, emotional relationship, and um, degrades the image of God in each other and physical safety, but it also does damage our view of who God is and how God works and what God asks of us. If we're, if this kind of bastardization of the idea of submission has transformed itself in negative ways to see ourselves and God in ways that is not glorifying to him. So I think the work of advocacy for victims of sexual violence is crucial to the life of the church as well. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's not, it's not something I, I sought for. It's something I sort of fell into. Mm. Um, kind of like I was saying, I, I was growing in my understanding of how the patriarchy had um, kind of blinded me to my own male privilege and, you know, Christian male privilege too. And, in the midst of all that, when Man Up campaign came along and found me, we were, I, you know, I was interested in women's empowerment. The whole violence, gender-based violence thing was a little difficult for me to enter into at first. It's still difficult to, to sit with sometimes, but it became something that as, as I entered into that space and became more comfortable talking about different aspects of it and getting to know a lot of survivors, whether it was in churches or whether it was, you know, just in all kinds of spaces, every space that really took on um, a, an important part of my own personal advocacy. But even if I don't, even if I don't get to do it as a vocation and I mean, part of the reason I'm back, I referred earlier when we were talking offline about, uh, being a high school teacher, part of the reason I do that is because, well, there are only so many jobs in the nonprofit and higher education spaces and stuff that, you know, that, that, that you can do advocacy type stuff. I feel like it's, it's as real a calling as it, as my calling to the pastorate was mm. back in the day that even if I don't get to do, you know, be an activist for a living, which would be wonderful. It's something I just have to talk about. I have to get it out there. I have to advocate for it, um, you know, because it is the it is the crisis that doesn't feel like a crisis because it's been around as long as human beings have been around. Mm. That gender-based violence, which doesn't just affect women but men and you know people who identify as non-binary and and just it's it's so prevalent. You know, I look back and I think, you know, I was a full-time pastor for uh, 12 years. In all that time, I only recall talking about sexual violence once. Hmm. That was in passing. Um, it wasn't the main topic of that day's sermon. It wasn't like I was averse to talking about it. it it's certainly something that we would talk about in, you know, in pastoral meetings, in counseling meetings, things like that. But to talk about it from the pulpit and just to kind of plant a flag and say, this is a huge problem in our society and it is not okay that we just kind of don't talk about it, let it go on. Just just like if there's any other crime that occurred to that many of our people in our church, then we'd be, we'd be all up in arms. But because it's this, this gender-based violence thing that's been going on since you know time immemorial, then it just continues, and and we don't 
see just how much of a crisis it is. And thank God, like you're saying, Aaron, I, I really feel like that's that's a move of God. Um, even though it took place mostly at first through people who you know who don't necessarily identify as overtly religious, um, a lot of folks who were pushing that early on. Not everybody, but just and so it's like for the first time, perhaps in human history, there's now there's now a reckoning or a calling to account for the ways that people are treated as as sexual objects uh, to be taken advantage of. And and the ways that has grown, I think, is it's not like all of us who've been activists in this space have been perfect. And, you know, we make some mistakes. I've probably said some things online that, you know, I wish I could walk back a little bit later on. But, you know, thank God for, for Me Too and Church Too and what other communities are doing, Mosque Me Too. Right in the Muslim community and and just all kinds of folks who who it's it's really grabbed a sense of empowerment to to call out the sin that is so prevalent that we've really ignored that as part of our corporate sanctification. Mm, yeah, uh, to put well it said. kind of churchy terms. Yeah, yeah, very well said. And you know, I'm I'm just kind of keeping an eye on the time here. So, Eugene, I'd love to. I don't I don't want to let you go before asking you this, which is um, one thing we try to recognize in this podcast and in our own lives is that uh, it has often been the sad case, both in classic feminism and and in the church, that we talk about these subjects in a white dominant space and often exclude the ideas of intersectionality, particularly having to do with race. And I know you mentioned, you know, raising Asian American daughters and so much of your advocacy is is uh, bound up in both um, feminism, but also um, issues of race. And we, we really love that. And we really want to make sure our listeners get a chance to make those connections. So what is something, Eugene, that when you go to these spaces to talk about uh, feminism, advocacy, gender theology, or when you're talking about this with Christians, what is something that is would be helpful for us to know about the intersections of um, gender and race uh, that that you can just that you can just share with us and help us maybe some resources that we can we can better ourselves with things like that. And I I really appreciate you all acknowledging that and being intentional about about uh, addressing that. I think for me uh, that's still something I'm working through and probably be working through for a long time, if not the rest of my life, because I too have grown up in, you know, American Christianity being quite dominant uh, and most of our theologians being, you know, white male. Uh, so I, I haven't, you know, I've taken on a lot of that myself, even though because I'm Asian American, I can see some of it, perhaps pick it out maybe more clearly um, in some ways. I think it's important for my, my white Christian sisters and brothers to keep ever before them there is that secondary layer that we have to be aware of or to 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 call out in ourselves we all because of how we've grown up or media or whatever that stereotypes still abound so even if we are looking to elevate um, and to let women have their proper place in our churches and parachurch communities and, and, and that we have to be aware that, that we're not subtly um, just playing into or buying into stereotypes of, of black women or you know mm. Latinas or Asian women. You know, whether it's you know when there's a leadership decision to be made, who who are we going to tap for this or that? Um, are we going to invite this person or that person to speak here or there or whatever that we beware of that temptation to to think of to be afraid of well uh the black woman she's gonna get angry the latina woman um she might be too sensual uh the asian woman she might be too docile to be a leader that we beware of that other layer you know it's something that i have to reckon with too i there's internal racism not necessarily just directed toward myself but you know i have racial prejudices that I have to take off when it comes to people of other races also for white allies that that would be another thing to keep in keep in mind that um, just because we're elevating women we want to be sure that we're not also 
subtly discriminating against women of color along the way. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that, Eugene. And um, just as as an ending point, now we know uh, your blog, uh, Feminist Asian Dad, uh, which we recommend to everyone. And of oh, course, same handle follow on Twitter. Is there anything else? I know I know COVID and quarantine has slowed a lot down, but are there other ways that our listeners can engage with you or learn from you? Um, your bio will, of course, list all the places that you're you're published. But is there anything coming up or anything our, our listeners can be aware of? Right now, uh, no, that's pretty much it. <laughs> At the moment, um, there's there's nothing on my speaking schedule. Um, I, I mean, I perhaps it's a function of COVID that I, I've I've actually gotten to do quite a few podcasts in the last several months, more so than before. There are a couple of other podcasts that that uh, I don't have a link to; they haven't come out yet, and um, those are actually not with faith based, um, you know. Uh, groups and so uh, if people are interested in hearing more about uh, where i come from with advocacy uh, especially in in the world at large or in kind of the mainstream outside the church um, that's something that i i pay a lot of attention to just in terms of you know, how do i relate to the world at large how am i salt and light in this world and um, th i mean that's something those are things that I'll probably link on link to on Twitter eventually when they come out in the next few months. But other than that, I don't blog as much as I used to, as much as I'd like to, uh, just as a function of time and, and uh, money. Cause I, you know, it's all, I'll get paid for it. Um, <laughs> right, real practical things, right? That's yeah. I, I would love to blog and be an activist all the time, but yes. uh, that's not, God has not, uh, God gave me that gift for a short period of time and I loved it. And I pray that he returns me to that. But um, if I can't, you know, then I'll just do what I can. Like I was reminded recently, a lot of the things that we do normally can be acts of resistance, quote unquote, mm -hmm. as we've used that a lot. Whether that's, whether that's parenting or whether that's just being kind, um, that we don't give into the, to the crassness that has become even more prevalent in our society um, that when we say that we're followers of Jesus, that we make it clear, we condemn um, name calling and dehumanizing people of color and immigrants and religious minorities and people from the LGBTQ community. And, and that, um, you know, that, that Jesus is not the picture that we get from what a lot of, our white evangelical brethren have have portrayed for us, and and so um, we can do all kinds of things that are really true to our calling in Christ. Mm, that's a good word. Well, thank you, Eugene. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for giving us your time and many prayers for you as you continue teaching oh, uh, during the time you. of COVID. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed that. Eugene is just so lively. And boy, he like I was surprised how gracious he was when we asked him about the intersectionality of being Asian American and also um, his daughters uh, growing up in this world. Like the, both of those things are important. And yet he was saying thank you for us to ask him about that. I think it's sad that, that more people don't. Uh, understand that that those two things go together that his daughters being women but also being Asian American um, factor into their experience so that was that was kind of wild and I think you can see that on his blog like if you go read his reflections on feminist Asian dad you really get to explore through his eyes and through his musings the intersections of race and gender specifically like an Asian American identity and being a woman and I um, not him being a woman, but his daughters being a woman. Sure, so him exactly. Exploring that through that, but I also really appreciated his reflections on masculinity. I mm -hmm. appreciated um, his candor in talking about uh, what he calls the man box, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What I call the masculine script. I yeah. mm -hmm. I think um, he really helped start cracking open that conversation for us in a way that I'd love to continue talking about because um, I think it's. Um, I think it's another missing piece 
in a lot of reflections on gender theology um and rightfully yeah. so in certain ways um because to uphold the equality of men and women there are there's a restoration of power ba- imbalances but i think talking yes. about the ways that um i know that we're both passionate about patriarchy being poor for both men and women albeit exactly. in differing and a gradient of ways i think it is important to acknowledge that it's it 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 is not for the flourishing of men either. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's just it's just so nice to have um, a few different men. We've had this season been able to to do this. Have a couple different men on the podcast to come and speak about these issues. Um, yeah, I, I think it just helps bolster our understanding that this is a gospel effort. That this isn't just like an a la carte item. That that both men and women in the pursuit of the gospel have to address these obstacles that come with our flourishing and living out um, the kingdom ethic. So um, we want you guys to uh, definitely follow Eugene on Twitter. Tons of fun, but also go subscribe to Feminist Dad blog and review the many videos and articles from Eugene all over the interwebs. Yeah. And thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can leave us a rating review or whatever platform you prefer we appreciate connecting um with you and getting your feedback and we would love to be connected with other listeners you think would be interested also if you really love the podcast really, you really. should join our patreon account yes you'll receive early releases of podcast episodes you'll listen to chaotic ramblings of your two favorite co-hosts <laughs> about gender art scripture tradition whatever's on my mind politics yeah um all why while we just hang out on zoom together um i'm blake dean with my co-host the reverend aaron monez and our fabulous producer bailey dingley where mutuality matters thanks for listening <laughs>